1 Samuel 17, starting at verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he went and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail him because fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistines. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. And David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when, when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if it rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David in his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped the sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I, I cannot go for with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook that, and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward, and David came, and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistines said to David, Am I a dog that you have come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistines said to David, 
Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the bone, birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts and the God of his armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give your dead bodies of the, of the host of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistines rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistines. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with, with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines may fall on their way from Shearim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came before, came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. But we continue our sermon series through Samuel. And last week in part one of this message, um, which is about David and Goliath, has that story in it. We learned that we face impossible challenges against a world of Goliaths, of giant, impenetrable antagonistic issues to such a degree that we have no hope left unless God alone comes and saves us. And so um, if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's sermon, I urge you to go back on our website on this YouTube channel and look at it. But today we will see just how God saves us from the Goliaths we face in three ways I want us to hear today. First, the Lord saves us from humiliation. The Lord saves us from humiliation. Secondly, the Lord saves us by serving us. Saves us by serving us. And finally, the Lord saves us for himself. For himself, from humiliation, by serving us, and for 
himself. I found this definition for humiliation on the internet and I liked it, right? It says that humiliation is the abasement of pride which creates mortification and leads to a state of being humbled or reduced to lowliness or submission. It is an emotion felt by a person whose social status, either by force or willingly, has just decreased. I also found this definition for the word punked in the Urban Dictionary. And it says, humiliated completely, as in disrespected. See the word clowned, right? A way to describe someone ripping you off, tricking you, teasing you, to incite or challenge another through verbal or physical behavior in order to humiliate or intimidate. When you make fun of someone so badly, they have nothing else to say back, to back down, from a confrontation. In our passage today, it is safe to, to describe and say the Israelite army was humiliated and straight punked by Goliath. And young David saw it firsthand. And, and when he came to, to, to basically bring lunch uh, to his brothers on the front line who were in the army, early in this chapter, in verse 16, it says this, for 40 days, the Philistine, Goliath, came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And then in verse 19, it says, now Saul and they and all the men, Saul was the king of Israel, and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and, and went as Jesse, his father, had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line and shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and, and went and greeted his brother. And he talked with them, behold, the champion, uh, the Philistine Gath of Gath, Goliath by name, came out, came up rather, out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid, the Bible says. And, and the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. And the people answered him in the same way, this is what should, will be done for the man who kills him. Goliath so scared the army of Israel that, that all the money, all the reward offered by King Saul for killing Goliath was not enough to make any man jump up against what the Bible says, the reproach of Goliath. Reproach, of course, means shame and scorn and humiliation. And the fact that the Bible says that this challenge and humiliation happened for 40 days, right? They would use that, 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 
that number 40 to, to speak to completion, which means it has gone from being a single action of someone else against them to now being a part, a settled part of their psyche in posture. Humiliation had settled in and taken over their souls. It is like a receipt that is over 90 days right? Whatever you bought is yours forever now. And with no mention of praying or doing any sacrifices, they were no longer living as faithful people who can trust their God anymore. We've all been there individually and as a church and picking up on the applications of last week when it comes to the number of issues surrounding race and virus and diseases challenging us every day of 2020 so far, we have come out like Israel, right? I remember with, with a battle cry thinking we got this and, and then we get pushed back in defeat and fear and realize just how difficult and near impossible it is to listen, to lose privilege, to not be the white person, right, who says or thinks the wrong thing, or the black person who does not know what to say when asked what to do, or the erroneously labeled model minority humiliated into a quiet place and space, not knowing where to go and stand, where you are, you know, doggone if you do or doggone if you don't, right? Where we're kind of stuck where we have historically failed and are shackled and profiled and, and stereotyped and, and people are demanding and asking for more than, than we should or feel we can give in this whole, you know, could you please repent of racism and could you listen and could you learn and could you come and protest? It seems like folks are pulling at the scab and skin of our moral and political consciences and that ain't right. And go back to last week's sermon, but the church and we as individuals and as general as the general community have so ignored, right? So live thinking, that ain't me for so long, like the 40 days thing, relished in and sinned and been tricked and out-schemed by Satan and his temptations or, or oppressed on the other side, oppressed as the, the object of all kinds of isms. We have found ourselves a humiliated people where there is no hope for change in sight. Broken. Broken by just how hard things are. Broken by think you, thinking you got it, and then you enter a conversation and realize you don't. Broken from thinking, hey, we good friends, we got it, the church is, is great, I love this multi-ethnic thing, and then realizing the further and further we're challenged and go, it, it begins to fall apart. And that can lead from what I would describe as broken humiliation to bitter humiliation. So David, right? He brings bag lunches to his big brothers and, and is interested in hearing and seeing the battlefront. And he goes back over and over, what shall be done to the person who kills this uncircumcised Philistine? And, and he doesn't just say, who, who, what, what does the person get who, who, who defeats Goliath? He says, what does a person get who defeats this uncircumcised Philistine who has come out to defy the armies of the living God? I felt it important, especially now, to not overlook this interaction where, you know, where, where, where we see David and his brother, 
Look at verse 28 with me. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's, the Bible says, anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. The Bible says, and David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And the Bible says he turned away from his brothers and went on asking the question. Again, I felt it important to talk about this. Because this happens so often in a space of common humiliation. Where, you know, we, we all been there. Where we've reached our human limit of pressure and stress and fear and accusation and demands. And we break and get angry and bitter like Eliab does here. You know, because when people press on and then they begin to bring light to our limitations, when they bring out our fears and our sins and our broken humiliation, humiliation of something we can or should have control or courage in, it stings, right? It hurts. We, we get irritated and tired, right, of hearing complaining from this group that things ain't right. And, and why hasn't America done this? And why hasn't the church done this? And, and why are we still behind on this? And, and when we begin to feel it's an accusation of ourselves, it makes us sore. Like Eliab, a soldier in God's army, he, he should not only have gone forward in human pride, but his faith, his belief, his fervor, his theology should have motivated him to go out there to face Goliath. And David is indirectly challenging that, isn't he? I'm sure this narrative, David's narrative of Who's go, basically saying, who, who's going to go out and fight Goliath? Who's going to defend our pride? Who's going who gonna to ride up? Who's going to stop being punk, right? And that narrative, I'm sure, is speaking inside Eliab and the others. Not only what David asked, but what Goliath has humiliated them to think. See, the inner and outer voices saying, look at y'all. Y'all ain't faithful. Y'all ain't true believers. You didn't pass the test. I gave you the race test and you failed. Right? I asked you about this issue and you don't know the history and you failed. You don't act woke, right? Y'all you, 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 ain't faithful. Y'all ain't true believers. You ain't real followers of God and, sh you know, who should be out there. Like Buster Rhyme says, where are my soldiers at? Y'all ain't no soldiers for Christ. There was a phrase in an article. Um, one of you, I think it was Kelly. It's just a phrase, not the whole thing. So I'm going to kind of short it, make it short. It'd be a little messed up. I know Kelly's out there thinking, say the whole thing. But anyway, but how hard it is for blacks to stay and trust evangelical churches. And even some of them question whether Christianity and the ways it's failed to respond to issues of race and social justice outside of abortion and sexuality, right? Where it and its people are 
you know, wondering, you know, is it and its people are, is that the truth in the way in a life that we should follow or continue to follow? And this one article answered it this way, that we should not ask whether Christianity is the white man's religion. We should rather ask, is the white man's religion Christianity? Right? Now, you be dropping stuff like that. And I will tell you this, okay? So let me just be honest. That should and would embarrass and sting me and anger me and make me defensive if I was a white evangelical Christian, right? I would think, why are you focusing on me? All lives matter. Everyone is a sinner. White Christians introduce faith to pagan Africans, right? All kinds of defensive stuff brews up in your mind. About 25 years ago, I was enamored by Presbyterianism among black people in my hometown in Charleston. And how Pres Presbyterian church was planted for black folk and was the largest Presbyterian church in the nation at one time. You know, like over 1,200 people. And, and I thought, wow, this is incredible, until I dug deeper. And I'm going to tell you, I did some serious research. There was a point in my research of this church back in the, in the mid and uh, late 1800s on into the early 1900s where, where I held, held the documents in my hand from the 1800s. And, and, and I went to the archive rooms, the Second Presbyterian Church, and, and some were half burned from a fire from the mid 1800s. And among all the things I researched, not just in those letters, I found that they started the black church down the street for two main and primary reasons. After slaves were free, this was one reason, they were afraid that white people would be attacked out of revenge by newly freed black people. That in the city, there was a slave rebellion and there was growing fear. They coming for us, y'all. And secondly, and this is sad, especially after the freeing of the slaves, but even beginning to be true before, it was revealed that many didn't want to do confession of sin in front of their current and former slaves and thus admit brokenness before God that might mean were equal. It might make blacks and slaves think their master were not, was not superior, but common sinners just like them. Y'all, this makes me sick and angry inside. And it should you too. But bitter humiliation. Listen, the thing that makes you build a wall, the thing that makes you dig in against accusations or critique to be stuck paralyzes and makes us angry at anyone who would tell stories like I just did. We don't want to hear about that. You're just trying to make us feel guilty, Pastor Brown. And it's easy because there were some people who were racist, right? It makes folks sort of, you know, stuck. It, it makes folks feel like they can't say or do anything right. I've heard it from some of my friends. We can't do nothing right. 
We say this, we wrong. We say that, we wrong. We can't do anything. Y'all are never happy. They are racist regardless of what they do, right? It makes folks stuck and when they get criticized for saying nothing while saying something will get them attacked and labeled because in humiliation, there is no place to hide with Goliath in front of you. And what feels like unfair accusations and history behind you where it just seems like someone has taken advantage of the stories you know the, the liberal minded uh, you know liberal agenda minded media is putting out there to get back with like like Eliab thought about David with evil in their hearts towards others who haven't personally done anything to anyone else and I've heard it, like Eliam told his brother David. You know, when I talk about these issues and, and these issues of race come up, let me tell you what bitter humiliation sounds like, right? Like Eliam, go care for them few sheep you got, right? Go back to what you're supposed to do. This is what I hear. Why don't y'all worry about black on black crime? Don't be coming and telling us what God wants to do with race. Worry about your own sheep. You know, y'all got enough to worry about with your crime statistics. You want me to read you some? And single parent homes and abortion percentages and the way you whine and welfare, the excuse of your laziness. You know, I hear stuff like I worked hard. You know, I've been on the battle lines. I grew up poor, too. My granddaddy had to work for everything he got. I worked out. Now you go and work hard, too, and quit telling about us, talking about us. No one gave me anything. My family was poor. We were immigrants and we had to work hard. Right. That's not familiar. No, you know why it's familiar? Because it's in the Bible. That's why it's familiar. The, I didn't make this up. This ain't some liberal trick. The Bible says he came out, asked about the battle, talked about the giant. And his brother says, go back to deal with those sheep. We don't need you making us feel bad. And even us black folk, people of color. We, we, we shaved, man. We skinned up by all the micro and macroaggressions and anger and, and, and this kindled anger. Like, like we see in the story with Eliab, that stuff can explode in our and other people's faces. It's almost like having a finger stuck in an old wound that just won't heal. And it becomes impossible. Hear me. And, and, as a pastor of multi-ethnic church, I'm going to tell you how this stuff really works. It becomes impossible to distinguish between someone on the outside trying to care and comfort and understand and reach out, right? Hey, uh, how many calls? Pastor Brown, I want to talk to you about, you know, all the stuff going on. I need help. You know, I'm, now I turn to Iliab. You know what, dude? Go to Google. Learn. I, I'm tired of you. Get away from me. Uh, you, 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 you got a lot to worry about. Quit bothering me. I'm, I'm a soldier. I'm on the battlefield. And you want to come and ask some questions, you know, whatever, because you're curious, right? Because, you know, uh, and all kind of thoughts come to mind. And they may not be true for that particular person, but I think the reason you want to know is because you realize that eventually your church going to close if you don't change. You realize that marketing-wise, you can't appear to be as racist as you are, right? Those are the thoughts that come to my mind. 
Right? You, you, uh, we, I can't distinguish between a sincere brother and someone just being carelessly and selfishly curious and self-justifying about things and other people feel the same on the other side. And there's this stuck anger between you and me when we are on the same side. Me, you, and me, and us and the issue at hand. There is this fear of being wrong or being found wrong or nobody wants to talk because nobody wants to be wrong. I don't want to be wrong. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be humiliated. Sometimes I get in conversations with people a lot smarter, a lot more conscious than me, and we be talking, blah, blah, blah. Don't you know this happened in history? Oh, no, I'm the sellout black man. Look, I, I get afraid too. There is fear of being wrong, of being found wrong, of our whole faith. And then one thing, when you start getting in these intellectual conversations, oh my gosh, and you talk to people who are on the front lines of, of, of blackness and, and changing things, and you're like, I'm a Christian. Really? What denomination? PCA? Oh, Lord. Please go back. Right? Just all this tension. And, you know, I don't even talk that much, y'all, about some of the inner cultural uh, issues going on. Like within the black family as a race, and we, we got some stuff too. There is fear because we failed or fumbled in some way. And then that ends up creating a rift, not only between brothers and sisters, but between us and our Lord Jesus. One commentary said this, that David's brother would rather criticize than repent. He was bitter in his humiliation and shame. Sometimes, like many of you, we would rather get into defensive and angry and theological and fact-finding sparring matches. And we should. We should as believers of those who would become believers to move from humiliation to repentance. Right? of owning sin and, and brokenness and saying, guess what? That issue is way too big, right? We need help and, and not fighting and being defensive and humiliation, but there is no road or way in that without the Lord himself coming to save us by serving us. Everything about teenage David says, Servant class. His father sends him with lunch for his brothers. He's just running an errand for daddy. His brothers remind him that he has a few sheep to care for. Keyword, few. Meaning, I'm just guessing now. I mean, we don't know for sure. But the way it sounds, and I kind of looked at it in original language, right? The, the way it sounds is almost meaning like he didn't have charge over the whole farm. Like he wasn't the farm manager. He's just given something to do, right? Something that helps or serves the bigger farm picture. Like son in our house, like y'all don't have to pay the mortgage. Don't have to pay the car note. Don't have to pay the energy bill. Can you do the dishes, right? So this is like, go home and finish the kitchen, right, David? Just, just go cut the grass, right? Just, just go take the trash out. This is what David is looking like. He is just given something to do. He ain't running anything. He's getting run. He even calls himself as much. Look at what he says to King Saul when, when he is, is brought to Saul. It says in verse 30, uh, no, verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, 
will go and fight with this Philistine. Then in verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep. Now you understand he's the king, so everybody serves the king. So I understand that. And then the, the weapons he uses. <laughs> These are servant weapons, y'all. He's not even officer level. David is got like mall cop level weapons, right? A slingshot and rocks is not a sword and a shield and a spear, right? Or, or, or armor, right? A slingshot and a rock is like some mace or pepper spray, right? And, and maybe some handcuffs. No, not even the metal ones, the plastic ones, right? He is serving. He comes as a servant, already a servant, to save. And that is exactly how and what God uses to save us from the bondage and humiliation of sin and Satan. Think about this. David had to ask a lot about fighting, killing Goliath. He almost had to beg. Verse 30, he had to turn away from his brother's anger and keep going and then overcome Saul's questioning. Ain't you just a kid? You can't go out there. You're going to get killed. Basically, Saul says, go on. If you want to be stupid and get yourself killed, that's all right, right? No one looked or could with human eyes at him and think, there's God's champion for us right here. And it is why Saul in verse 38 is the only one in his son, Jonathan, who had halfway equal weapons and, and armor as Goliath, tried to put his armor on David, the Bible says. So he says, yeah, you can fight, but don't go out there looking like that. Put the armor on, right? But they were too big. The Bible says he couldn't get used to them. David's not used to them. Not the way David rolled. But Saul's attempt told the story. You can't save us. Oh, servant. The Bible uses the word ruddy, small, handsome, right? In other words, you, you, your knuckles ain't even worn yet. You, 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 don't have no, you, you don't have no old man wounds. You, you ain't been through nothing. You don't look like a soldier, just a servant boy who's not equipped to beat what we are up against. Why? So, so put this on, because you will not encourage others to jump up and help. This is what he's saying. You, David, look like a humiliated, smallest version of what we already look like. And look at us, right? In fact, David... In fact, David looked like the worst presentation of an Israelite they could ever put into battle. He looked like the worst of us taking on the world's greatest and best and most humiliating thing against us. Look, y'all, our faith, the gospel, the church, believers, we regular, y'all, at best. Look at us. Look at my dumb shirt. Look at us, right? We, we, we weak. We're corny, right? So, so like the most not ready institution, right? But that's what we look like. We ain't ready, right? We, we, so we just, we, so we want to be just as equipped as the world. We like the armor. We, we want to lead with being smart and well-marketed and, and our people are just as angry and we're just as sophisticated and we're just as moral and we're just as conscious and woke looking, just as strong in the same way, just as enlightened, but our salvation like David did through Jesus our Lord seeks and comes to us in our issue like a servant 
like and even lower than the weakest and most humiliated of us to serve and save us in our weakness and sin. You know what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah says about the coming Savior? It's a prophecy about Jesus, who's like the David for all of our Goliaths. Listen to this description. Who has believed, who has believed what he has heard from us? Right? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, for he, meaning Jesus, right, one day grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Now listen what they say about Jesus, our, our Savior. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man, men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one, now listen to this now, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The big issues of race. It's going to come in a package and in a way that looks nothing like the world would expect. That means regardless then of how bad things are or where or we are, we can rise up and repent because Jesus has already, the Bible is teaching, been you, right? He's already gone for you with your mess on him. He's already experienced the worst you and the worst you have ever experienced. And like David did before his brother and Saul, he's already experienced and exposed himself to the worst of our discrimination and profiling and hatred. Isaiah says we, he was looked at and he was despised. Men hid, hid their faces from him. In other words, when he walked down the street, people were like, mm. Right? We don't even want to look at how weak and ugly and nasty and, and just not how ready Jesus looked. He makes us feel ashamed. Man, it's so true. When we're dealing with these issues we're dealing with, some of us are ashamed that Jesus is our final answer to this issue. We want to be smart. We, 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 we want the book knowledge. We want to be the enlightened ones in the room. We want to be impressive. And we bring Jesus in the pit. People are like, oh, Lord, gone with this Christian stuff. You know why Jesus came in bare humanity and humility like David did that day before Goliath? Because like the best servant or nurse or healthcare worker, you could not have, you could have, he didn't come to tease us or show us up or just show us how to be and how to do it. No, he came to confront our common enemy, not condemn us. He came to take on our fears and burdens and struggles like one of us. As the people's champion, he came to serve and save those who don't have it all together. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to save those who aren't woke. I'm coming to save those who don't have the right answers to all the questions. I'm coming to save those who don't have enough to beat their foes. I'm coming to save those who think it's crazy to march and protest and are afraid, who can't escape shame and failure and guilt. If you that person, I've come to serve you.
so that by grace, y'all hear me? By grace, we can finally let our defenses shake off the armor of our anger and bitterness and fear and guilt and say, yes. I am this, and I am scared, and I do feel guilt, and I am ashamed, and I don't get it. But my Lord, just in his presentation as a servant to me, has declared he is not ashamed of me. And he gets me. And only then, when we recognize him as serving our brokenness, can we go on the offense and repent and confess our sins and admit then and admit to stuff. And then and only then join to fight a common enemy for someone else in service to someone else, maybe more directly and more directly and differently affected by things that change and grow and a new way of life living only comes, you know, that only comes if we believe and then experience as a servant Jesus as a servant, not only for us, but in our last point here, for God himself. Look at verses 44 through 47. It says this, the Philistines said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the, of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth, hear this, may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Now, it is clear from David's word and then his actions. And that he did so with a slingshot and a stone, as, and as the Bible says, without a sword in his hand. Now, 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 listen carefully. That This happened in such a way and through such a person. We talked about the servant kind of person or presentation and victory that no one would be left doubting that this was the Lord who did this. That no one would be left knowing who gets the glory. That his salvation be glorified. Now understand, this was not about the brilliance and bounty of Saul's reward or David getting and retaining a spot of place or privilege or advantage or, or, or trying to, you know, we, we need to get law and order back, right? Or, or, or trying to get some heritage claim or, or primarily about moral authority or being where you can shape policy. He wasn't trying to be a Goliath so he can help the shepherd's union out, right? Or the shepherd's lobby. Or, or by, by being married into the royal family or trying to change things primarily through political power as he might be able to become the king. Or just a good idea to do this. No one thought this was a good idea. This was done so that people could see that God himself wanted this change for us 
in our world. That all else be faulty, but by any means necessary, God be true. His word right. His promises. His mission. His grace for us. The other night we were having a discussion. Pastor Amari, our assistant pastor here. And we were like, man, we, 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 we just want change now. Like, we, we, we want policy change, right? You, you know, you get caught up, you're like, look, man, I don't care about uh, people praying. I, I don't care. You know, I, I, okay, folk don't have to be woke. I, 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 you know, we say things like, well, we, we just want our money, right? We, we want that reparation for that $300 billion that we gave for free. Like, we, they, I, I'll take it. Right. It, 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 it's only twenty dollars now. If you spread it out, five, five. give me the twenty dollars. Right. So we start talking stuff, controversial stuff. I know oh, Pastor Brown mentioned reparations. No, don't don't go there. Right. But the point is, you start to think this is about political power. Yeah, God can use it. But Amari said this. If this is just a policy issue. There's no need for the church. Let's just all join Congress. If this is just about policy, what am I doing up here? Let's just get God's stuff and leave God out the formula. We just want the blessing, but we don't want the one who gets the blessing to actually be worshipped for it. Do you understand the chief end that we have is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our end. And what happens is these things are in the way of glorifying him. But we've made him in the way of the stuff we want. You know, protests for God's glory are not just happening on the streets or online, but on your knees, people. Protests for and against the stuff that is not right within yourself and what you see in the world before and to and in trust of, of the one who is most concerned about it in us. The Lord, the, if you just don't get it or, or preoccupation, you think there's this preoccupation with race, we believers act and respond like we know and believe. Guess what? God gets it. You know, there's lots of criticism and concern. I brought this up last week over the Black Lives Matter, Inc. And how we need to be careful because they're Marxists and this and that and got this going on and saying this and that. We can't say Black Lives Matter. Don't need to be to anything like them. We don't need to wear the shirt. People can get confused and that messes up the gospel message, right? Uh, did I ever tell you the story of Georgia Right to Life, which is a pro-life organization. Back when I was in Atlanta, they called me and said, would you like to do the prayer for it at the state building? I'm like, yeah, I'm pro-life. I got there. And they're like, Pastor Brown, you're number six on the list of people to talk. You know who was in line with me? All the people evangelicals think are off, right? The Mormon guy was there. The Muslim guy was there. Some politician who wasn't even a believer, he was just right wing. And when I called the lady later and asked about the moral code and what was written in their documents, she could not tell me it was Jesus and the Bible. It was just 
the issue. And guess who was at the meeting? Every conservative Christian church in Atlanta. For an organization that whose moral code was not even the Bible. You know, let me say this. We might be called by God on the same battlefield in this world with the world, even hoping for a similar outcome with a common enemy even. And it can be confusing as you look and see the confusion of a battle from a distance. But I'm going to go ahead and say it like David said to Goliath. Some of us are fighting and coming at things with swords and spears and javelin because that's all you know, policy and politics and power and human persuasion. But we believers come to any issue in this world in the name, right? According to the revealed truth and word and person of God and Christ. Jesus and his glory. You know why Black Lives Matter? Not because it was a good idea. Not because some organization or political group or trend says it. Because God says it and wants it to be true that Black Lives Matter because God's glory matters. Do y'all remember that old corny but catchy song back in the day by, I think it was Michael W. Smith. I can't remember. Y'all know I'm old. Michael W. Smith. He was hot then. Was that his song, Father of Light? Y'all remember that? Oh, I'm too old. And the song was like, Father of Light. It's real corny sounding, y'all. Father of Light, shine down on me. Let the people see. Right? And it had this shine on my good display. So, so people can be drawn to you, right? To your teaching by shining on me. And so, yes, God gets glory. And how we live out and use our spaces of advantages and influence and skills and us being well-read and not being racist like other people being woke. The, you know, how Christians, you know, they run the touchdown, the athletes, they get on their knee and they point up, right? John three sixteen, I wear right. Or maybe kneeling some of us for eight minutes and 46 seconds and mourning the death and suffering of George Floyd. But also, when we fail and fall down our knees, on our knees, when we don't point up, but we point to our hearts. When we say, Father of light, shine a light on, not me, for my goodness, but my darkness. While I'm in the valley or in the fear of things, while I am hurting, because you get glory and your glory gains victory in and for my brokenness, that I can't be saved, I can't be rescued unless you glorify yourself as someone who had come and saved me like Jesus, like David. Show me, shine light, represent my sin and weakness so that you are glorified not as my sidekick, not as my moral vitamin, not as my moral supplement or example, but as my Savior who comes to get glory for saving me. Brought this up a little bit before. Read a statistic. Apparently $300 billion of free labor went into the American economy through slaves. $300 billion. It's no secret to descendants of slaves 
that much, if not most, of the backbone of this country was built on free labor. Free. Slave labor. That I know my, my, my great-grandfather served in the armed forces in, in, in the World War, and when he got back, white GIs got 10,000. He got two. He wasn't allowed to use his GI Bill to buy where he wanted to buy. He had to live in a certain part of town. And like my grandmama. I, I just begin to think about it. She nourished this country by cooking for it, cleaning for it. And hear this, not only raising her kids, but most of the day, the privileged white children and households. But understand that she, like many black women, right? Because we, we give a lot of grief to single black women, right? Single black moms, right? She, like many black women in her day, were the single mother for most of America. And she raised not only white privileged kids and households and her own black children, sing, ch own, own, own black ch children, who, because there were mothers too busy and privileged or put on a false pedestal to care for and cook for their own families. She did it. And it made America great. My black ancestors didn't just work for free. They suffered, hear this now, so that everyone else but themselves and their own could be great. But this historical truth is not a rant. Don't start feeling insecure and mad. It is an apropos illustration. Our Lord in the gospel came as a suffering servant who went on the, onto our field of battle and fought all our enemies and all kinds of isms so that God's glory can be great in you. Now, I'm not going to read the scripture here. We're kind of running long. But at the end here, David destroys Goliath, cuts his head off. And when they see that, the Bible says that the armies of God who were stuck in humiliation, the armies of God who couldn't move forward to do anything in the world, that they jumped up and they shouted and they plundered and they killed the Philistines and they pushed all of the evil that was in their land and, and, and metaphorically in their heart, they began to be able to push it back because God's glory that was God's alone was shared and released and made great in them. I've heard it preached from this text, go conquer your giants. And that is farthest from the point of this story, which is let the Lord conquer your giants and serve you so you and I can live out a giant-sized blessing and glory that our champion, ultimately pointing to Jesus, has gotten for us, has served for us freely, suffering so that we can get the blessings of his grace. 
this racism thing or any ism, any human rights issue and sin issue we face for ourselves or others is a giant you and I cannot conquer. There, I said it. We might go battle it and get some good shots on it, but only our Lord sent and ordained by the Father to come to the front lines of human humiliation and suffering. Why do we, like Israel, move and give ourselves to the mission of human rights and dignity against something so humiliating and nebulous? Why do we shake the hornet's nest where we are sure to get stung by potential accusations and, and mess of being racist or Marxist or socialist or unappreciative of being an American or anti-authority? Why would we mess with that? Because we live and love and believe Jesus gave us something that we did not earn. He gave us welfare. He gave us a salvation stimulus, y'all. And when he went out and fought our giants for us, when Jesus came and suffered and died and rose again like David did Goliath, Jesus took the head off of racism and sexism and ageism and classism and sin and Satan and institutionalized evil so that we can be impassioned and relish and experience and enjoy and then share in and share out the power and privilege of the gospel to bridge and reconcile and save and heal the gaps between you and me you and me, neighbor. You and the Lord, my neighbor. Me and you, Lord, our Savior. In the message translation, Jesus said these words, and I'll close with them. Before going to the cross, he said, in this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties but take heart. I've conquered the world. And he went on to pray this to the Father God about us. He says, because of them and their witness about me, the goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So they might be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. The same glory you gave me, I gave them. So they'll be as unified and together as we are, I and them and you and me. Then they'll be mature in this oneness and give the godless world evidence. Not that they're smart. Not that they're more woke than anybody else. Not that they're powerful and privileged. But that you've, God, sent me and loved them in the same way you've loved me. Christ came between you and me to heal the issues between you and me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. You came to be a servant, a suffering servant for us. It is so easy to just be bitter. I do pray for those who hear this message and immediately feel condemned, criticized, 
feeling like they have to carry the load now. But Lord, we know from your word today, you've said, I'll serve. I'll go for you if you can't. Thank you, Lord, for going for us. We're too afraid. We're too self-righteous. We're too great within ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that the glory that is yours alone, you share and release in us. Lord, I pray again for those who think who are having a hard time right now struggling. I don't want this thing to be out Jesus and love and all that stuff. I'm tired. Go for us, Lord. Love where we can't love. Reach where we can't reach, where we're too tired, we're too hurt, we're too scorned. Some of us are thinking, here we go. If you're a white man, you're in trouble. It's just not fair. Go for us, Lord. Don't condemn us. Save us. We need you. It's too confusing out there. We need you and too confusing inside. Thank you for coming in between us and saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.